what we looked at last week on the Sunday that we call Epiphany, the Sunday that we look at the story of the wise men. I think what we talked about last week was so critical and so important in such a significant story. Sometimes what happens is um, we have this time that we call Advent where we prepare for Christmas. We get to Christmas. We celebrate Christmas together. We um, come to that Christmas Eve time or that Christmas day, and then we sort of pack everything up. We put everything in boxes. We sort of move on to the next thing. We get into the new year. And I think what begins to happen, if we're not really careful about it, and I know that I'm guilty of this, and I know that we all tend to do this, we just sort of move on. We get into the next year. And I think what's significant about the Christmas story is that that story continues for us. The, the birth of Jesus is so significant and so important that throughout history, traditionally, what has happened is, there's been a time and a season to really reflect on the meaning of Jesus' birth, the meaning of the idea of Emmanuel, God with us, the meaning of his birth and, and being in, in our world and being a part of us and what that means and what that looks like and all of that significance. So for traditionally, what the church has done is for 12 days after Christmas, really focused on that, looked at those stories, began to allow us time to process and think about that, to also celebrate the birth of Jesus. Now, what's fascinating is when we look at the New Testament, we look at the stories of Jesus. For, for, for the beginning you know, time of, of the period of the church, after the death and the resurrection of Jesus, you, you didn't have the books that we call the New Testament, because the church was busy living out the way of Jesus and busy writing those texts that we now have available to us. And in those texts, what we find is the earliest texts don't talk about Jesus's birth. And then we see that as we look at Mark and or we look at Matthew, as we look at the book of Luke, we see these narratives about Jesus's birth. And then we begin to see the significance of those narratives. We begin to see as they spoke to their communities what they were trying to help people to understand about Jesus and why his birth was so significant and why it mattered so much. Now, what's great about that is that we have those texts available for us to look at, to read, to explore. This is the power of Scripture is that these texts began to be read, people began to interpret, began to understand, began to see things about them, began to learn things about these texts that became alive in their lives in ways that they never could have before. And one of the cool things that we see and what we focused on in the book of Matthew last week was this story of the wise men who come to see Jesus, to worship Jesus, to come before him and in that story, we find this incredible significance about the wise men who find that he is the Savior, he is the Messiah, he is the King, and he is Savior and Messiah and King to everybody. Because what is incredible about their story is that we don't know a lot about the wise men, but we know that they are outsiders. And we know that they came to worship him as outsiders, and they are welcome to come and worship him. And so all of us, no matter our background, no matter where we come from, we recognize and see that he is the savior of the world. Come for all of us. And this is the significance that Matthew wanted to talk about and why he included this story in his gospel of Jesus. 
Now, Matthew also did some very fascinating, some interesting things. And if you go back and you listen to the story, uh, you listen to the sermon that I talked about last week, I talked about a coin that Matthew would have been really familiar with. On one side of that coin was Caesar Augustus, the ruler of Rome at that time. On the other side of that coin was a comet. That comet represented the, the idea that Caesar Augustus believed that he was divine, that he had divinity. Now, Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew would have worked in these coins. He would have held these coins in his hands as he worked as a tax collector for Rome. And for him, these coins represented a lot. They represented his way of life, which honestly was steeped in greed. It was steeped in ripping off people. Uh, his, his way of life and the way he did things is represented in those coins. Those coins also represent his allegiance that he had given his allegiance to that king. But beyond that, it, his allegiance wasn't just to that king. His allegiance was to what that king represented. And for him, it represented this wealth. It represented his life, his lavishness, and all of these things. And then something incredible happened. Jesus came up to that table that Matthew was sitting at. And Jesus spoke to him and said, Hey, Matthew, I want you to come and I want you to follow me. I want you to come and follow me. Now, what's really cool about this is that Matthew, if we look at what he did in his story, we see that Matthew is the one that tells us about Jesus being born under a star that the wise men saw. And so in this coin, we see Caesar Augustus on one side. We see this comet on the other side representing this idea that somehow this king in Rome was divine. And then Matthew says, hold up, I've got another story to tell you about. I've got another story of a king who was born under a star. And it wasn't about a man who believed he was God. It was God who became man to be among us and with us. And then Matthew says, later on in my life then, that man came to me. He said, come and follow me. And Matthew took those coins that were in his hands, those coins that he was holding that represented his allegiance to Rome, to Caesar Augustus, to this man that believed he was a god. Matthew dropped those coins to come and follow the man born under a star who truly was divine, who was God with us, God become man, found in this man, Jesus Christ. And Matthew gave his life to him. I don't know if he dramatically dropped those coins, but I imagine as he sat and held them, he had to think and process this. What am I giving up to follow this Jesus? And Matthew says, every one of us is in that position. Every one of us is in that place where we are choosing to follow Jesus and we are setting our lives, not on our own path, not in our own throne, but we are following him in his direction for our lives. We don't know what that's gonna look like. We're not, we, we, we don't know what is in the road ahead where he is leading us, but we put our trust and our faith in him. And part of us has this sense of worry. I, I don't know what to expect. I don't know what that could be, and I don't know what to do with that. So Matthew, at that table pondering the invitation, I wonder how he reflected on that. So we found some words that Matthew wrote, words of Jesus that he recorded, an invitation that they give us to place all that we know, just like Matthew, all that we know behind us, to place all of our worry that we have and to follow him. This is what it said. This is the words of Jesus that Matthew gave us. Maybe words that he was pondering as he thought about this. 
Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. How true this must have seemed for Matthew. He goes on, he continues to quote Jesus. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown in the fire, will he not much more clothe you? you of little faith. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And that was the challenge. That was the challenge that was given to Matthew when Jesus came before him as Matthew sat at that tax collector's table. And Jesus says, come and follow me. What he was saying to Matthew is, whose kingdom will you choose? Will you choose the king that is represented on that coin that is in your fingers? That honestly really represents the king that you believe that you are of your own life. Will you choose to follow that throne? Or he says, will you put that down? Will you place that down? And will you trust and follow me? There are so many things that we can take from that. The idea that we make our king our, our, our desires of our lives. We, we make our king our resources, our finances. We make our king our money that we hold in our hands. And we think, if I just have enough of this, I will be satisfied. And so we allow that to become our king. Maybe Matthew places that worry as his king. And it seems strange to us to think about that. So some, some of us have worry as our king. That that is the thing we focus on the most in our lives. And I think I'm guilty of that. We've all been guilty of that. And so this is a challenge for every single one of us to say, place those things, put those things down, come and follow Jesus. Now, as we process that, as we think about that, as we think Matthew sitting there receiving this invitation to come and follow, the worry that he had in his life, listen again to these last three verses. Because I think these are critical to the life of Matthew and the choice he made to follow Jesus. I think they're an invitation to us as well. So Jesus says, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. Your heavenly father knows that you need them, but seek first his kingdom. See, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. So Matthew got it from the table and he chose Jesus. He chose first his kingdom kingdom. So the questions I have as we enter this next year, as we enter this series that we're in, is as we enter this, what would it look like you? Or what would it look like for you to seek first 
his kingdom and his righteousness in all areas of your life. I want you to process that and think about that. What would it look like if today you decided, I'm going to seek first his kingdom, his righteousness in every area of my life? What would it look like for you to trust, obey, and seek God's will above all other things that you could seek out this year? There's all kinds of things that we could be seeking. What would it look like to trust, obey, and seek out His will above everything else before us? And then I want you to think about how would that impact your life, your family, the people you encounter every day? What would it look like for us as a church, a community exploring the way of Jesus, to commit together to daily to seek His will? And how would that change? How would that change our church community? How would that change us as individuals? How would that change our city and the neighborhoods in which we live? Can you begin to see the impact and the difference that that would make if we sought His will in our lives? Now, the implications of going beyond asking these questions and answering them are huge. I think the most important questions we as followers of Jesus will ever ask is if we are given the daily choice to choose the kingdom we serve, what what would that look like? Which, who will we serve? That's the biggest question we can ask. What does it look like to daily follow Him? How do we set our minds in God's ways with so many competing choices that bombard us from the moment that we wake up? Now think about that. Every single day that we wake up, we are bombarded with choices. Which kingdom will I choose? Will I live in His righteousness and His will today? Or will I seek a very different kingdom? Will I seek my own way this day? And so we have to begin to ask ourselves, what what do we do? How do we do that? How do we set our minds in a place where we are daily seeking His will? And honestly, I don't think it's as much as us just waking up and saying, I choose daily to follow Him. I think that's significant that we choose daily to make that decision. I think choosing Jesus is a daily decision. It's not a one-time decision. It's a daily choice that we make to follow him. But for many of us, when we get up in the morning, we have these competing things. We need a way to begin that. So how do we get there? How do we move beyond saying it? How do we actually live it out? And I think the answer to that is to pray. There is probably no more, in fact, you know what I'll just say, there is no more powerful spiritual act that we can implement in our lives than the practice of prayer. Yet, let's be honest, for many of us, we struggle with prayer. And as I thought about this, and I wondered, why do we struggle with prayer so much? And you may look at me and say, Ryan, how do you struggle with prayer? You are the pastor of a church. You're telling me you struggle with prayer. Yes. I might be a pastor, but I'm a human just like you. And I think we all tend to struggle at times at how do we pray? What does it look like? And I think the reason for that is simple. I think for a long time, prayer was seen as a public act, using the right words, saying the correct things, all in the correct order. Sometimes I laugh because I get asked to pray at family gatherings or, I, or maybe we're hosting something and, and you know, I look around and I'm thinking, well, I, I'm probably going to be the one to pray in this moment. And sometimes I think to myself, what if I don't say the right things? What if I don't say the right words? And it's kind of ridiculous to think about, but I think some of us see that and some of us think that way that if I don't say the right things, if I don't say the right order, if I don't do it the right way, 
Maybe I'm doing it wrong. And that's kind of how we begun to think about prayer. And it begins to think of this as this public act. Yet here, guys, I want you to see this. When Jesus talked about prayer, he talked about prayer in such a significantly different way that when we begin to see how he talked about prayer, it's jarring. I mean, it is absolutely a jarring shift in our lives and should cause us to go, wait a minute. You know, this is maybe something we've been thinking about, living out, doing in maybe the wrong way, that there is a different way to do this that is way more impactful, way more um, in, in engaging of our lives. Now, when Jesus talked about prayer, we find this in Matthew chapter 6. We find this right before all of this stuff about do not worry about what you uh, eat, what you drink. Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. All of these things, we find this before that. So let's go back to that, to Matthew 6. I'm going to start in, in verse 5 now, just a few verses above what we read just a few minutes ago. And it says this about prayer. It says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Now listen, I don't know that Jesus could have been any more clear about what he just said here. There are times that I say, listen, there's a lot of, of gray, there's a lot of, of, of interpretation, there's a lot of ways we negotiate as we think about the text, but here, there's a lot of clarity. Jesus is, is very straight up here. Truly, I tell you, these people that pray in public, man, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, now Jesus is speaking directly to his disciples, directly to his followers. When you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, this whole reward thing is really fascinating here because he says these hypocrites who love praying in the synagogues, they've received their reward in full. And what Jesus is saying is that if your goal is for other people to see you pray and for them to be impressed by your public prayer, you'll get that reward. That's exactly what he's saying here. So these, these hypocrites that he talks about, they love standing in the synagogues. They love praying for everyone to see them and to hear them, to know that they know how to get all the words in the right orders, to say all of the right things. You know, they want to make a public spectacle of prayer. Jesus says, if that's how you want to pray, you will get your reward in full because everyone will see you. You'll get exactly what you want. Now, I know some people like this. I know some people that the biggest thing for them was praying on the biggest stage. I know some people who the focus of their, honestly, they thought the coolest thing ever was that they prayed on stage and it was on TV and they got to pray in front of a bunch, bunch of people. And honestly, they got their reward. That's what they wanted to do. They wanted to be seen praying. Now, I'm not saying that everybody, everybody like that has some kind of, um, that, that they're, that they're, they're, they're completely hypocritical. I don't think that's always the case. I think there's people who are very honest. I think there are people who are very legit in how they approach that. But I do think there's a subset of people that think that all that really matters 
is this public prayer for people to see us praying, to see our righteousness. And Jesus says, man, you're missing it. You're absolutely missing the point. He says, I want you to see that there is a different way to do this. He wants our focus to be on something else. He's saying if, our, if your prayer doesn't impact you, if it's just simply stringing words together for other people to see, that you're missing it. He says there's a different way to do it. And he said, that's why he says this next in his teaching. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans. For they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now, this seems a little strange. We're a little, uh, maybe babbling like pagans seems a little strange to us. But, but hey, let me back up and, and let me help us see what this means in context and what this can mean for us today. One of the biggest fears in the ancient world, uh, a fear that we don't really have much today, is that you would offend a god. The gods were mysterious. They were angry. They were distant. And you never knew if they were actually listening to you. So in response, prayers to the gods were written to be recited in public. They were complex. They were confusing. They were hard to remember. They would pile on different names, different attributes to these gods. And hopefully, whatever god you were praying to would be awake and would be listening. So Jesus is saying, sometimes these hypocrites stand up. And they begin to pray for everyone to hear, for everyone to say what they're saying. And as they do it, they begin to pray all these things and put all these attributes and all of these things. And we've seen this in our own lives. Oh, oh, good and gracious, almighty. You're right, we go into that. Again, I'm not saying there's not sincerity there. But I think sometimes what has happened when we have done that is we have created a spectacle of prayer rather than making it an honest connection to our God. Because we've allowed it to become this public thing that we want people to be impressed by what we're doing. So if you've ever ever struggled to pray and you say, I don't know how to approach God, this is for you. You don't need to know all these special words or all these attributes or all these names or all of these things. Now before we get to what God is asking to be called, what Jesus is saying we should refer to God as, let me tell you a story. It's from the Hebrew scriptures. And as Jesus points to this idea of people babbling on like pagans, we find this fascinating thing uh, in, in the book of Kings. Now listen to this. It says this. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. So this is found in the Hebrew scriptures. It's a, when a followers of a God named Baal challenged a man named Elijah in his God. And now listen what happens here. So Elijah says, I'm the only one left. There's 450 prophets that follow Baal. So, so get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves. Let them cut it into pieces. Put it on the wood, but do not set fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull, put it on the wood, but not set fire at it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given to them. They prepared it. They called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered. They danced around the altar they made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder! Surely he is a God. Perhaps he's deep in thought, or he's busy, or maybe he's traveling. Maybe he's not even there. Maybe he's sleeping. He must be awakened. 
This is so funny. I mean, he is literally just making fun of these guys. Hey, maybe he's not here. Maybe he's not listening. So they shouted louder. They slashed themselves with swords and spears as their custom until their blood began to flow. Midday passed. They continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. This kind of praying is a part of almost every culture in history for a good reason. It is human to struggle with the idea that whichever God you're praying to isn't listening. It's easy to begin to think that maybe, maybe there's no God listening. Maybe, maybe if I don't say all these elaborate things, maybe if I don't impress him enough, maybe he won't hear what I have to say. Now, this is where this gets significant. Because Jesus tells us that our Heavenly Father knows what we need before we even ask. If you go back to what Matthew wrote about Jesus talking about worry, he says, hey, your Heavenly Father knows what you need before you even ask. And suddenly, what Jesus did in that moment was he flipped the idea of praying on its head. He completely flips this thing upside down. So I want you to imagine these disciples steeped not just in their culture, but in the culture of these stories that they read, surrounded by ultra-religious people who knew all the right things to say about God, with these elaborate prayers that somehow would awaken their gods, somehow allow God to listen, to somehow impress the gods or their God enough that he would hear. And this is true even of the people who followed God, who followed Yahweh, who followed him, that, that they were trying to impress him just like these pagans. And Jesus says, what are you doing? Your heavenly father knows what you need before you even ask. And imagine these disciples hearing this for the first time. All of a sudden, everything changes. God is listening. He isn't looking to be impressed. God is looking for us to be honest. He's looking for us to be vulnerable. He's looking for us to be trusting when we pray. So Jesus teaches his disciples and us to pray, and he says these words. This, then, is how you should pray. Now imagine this. So Jesus is standing before his disciples. He says, look, look, these hypocrites that stand in the streets... They pray, they babble on, they're trying to impress people, or they're trying to impress God. They have all these words that they're saying. I want you instead, I want you to open your door. I want you to go inside your room. I want you to shut the door. I want you to pray quietly. I want you to pray with vulnerability. I want you to pray with trust. I want you to pray in a way not trying to impress anybody else not even trying to impress God. You don't need to do that. He is your heavenly father. He is already listening. He already knows what you need before you even ask. Now I have to imagine, because I'm asking, and the disciples are probably asking, okay, I still need to know what I'm supposed to say. I don't know sometimes what to do in those moments. I shut the door. I get ready to pray. What am I supposed to say? So Jesus says this. This then is how you should pray. 
Now listen, I think this is important for us to see. He doesn't say this is then what you should pray. And I think there's something significant about uh, remembering a text like this, reciting this text, praying this in a, as a community together. But I want you to see, he says, this then is how you should pray. Jesus isn't telling us what the building needs to look like. He's simply putting the scaffolding on it and saying, as you construct prayer, I want you to think about it like this. He's giving us the tools for how to pray. So this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So as we enter this How to Pray series that we're going into over these next few weeks, as we look at the intricacies of this prayer and all of these different clauses that Jesus has given us here, I want us to begin with this statement. Our Father in heaven. And I want you to see that Jesus begins by inviting us into this relationship through this way of prayer. And as we say these words, our Father in heaven, we are reminded that he knows what we need before we even ask. We immediately can think about the, the, the text that he gave us before where he talks about that, hey, do not worry. Your heavenly Father knows what you need before you even ask. He's our good and perfect Father, listening and loving. Nothing that we uh, say will change how he thinks about us. And I love this, that this prayer, as Jesus says, this is how you should pray. The first scaffolding, the first piece of that, he says, don't, don't try to impress him. You, you don't need to throw all these different attributes and all these different names. You, you don't have to cry out in a certain way or do a certain thing. You simply come to him as your heavenly father, knowing he is good knowing he is perfect, knowing that he knows what you need before you even ask. I hesitated to put this story in my sermon, but I, I decided to include this today. I lost my dad to cancer this last year. And I want to tell you one of the most powerful moments that I had with him was at the end of his life. That one of the last things that he said to me was that he loved me and that he was proud of me. Now, I'm sure I have told many of you this before because as I've talked about him, as I've talked about that moment, I, I've shared this because it, obviously it was so huge and so impactful for my life to have him look at me and say, I love you and I'm proud of you. Now, our relationship didn't always feel that way. It was strained at times, just like any relationship. And while I now know that it was always true, I look back and I know how fortunate and blessed I was at that moment to hear those words too. And now I'm a dad, 
of two girls that I love more than anything that this world could ever give. And I only want them to hear those words as well. So I think about it all the time. And I mess up all the time. But I want them to ultimately be set in that place where they think my dad loves me and my dad is proud of me. Now, I also know because of what Jesus says that every one of us is looked at that way by God. Your heavenly father loves you, listens to you, knows what you need. And he is waiting to welcome you into his arms at any moment that you come to him in prayer. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be unsure weary of his welcome. Today, as we come to this point, I just want you to know that his arms are wide open for you. And so before we say any other words, and maybe none at all, you can simply begin your prayer by saying, our Father in heaven. And you can know that your heavenly Father is proud of you. He loves you. He is good and perfect. He knows what you need before you even ask. And so you are simply coming to him, honest and trusting and saying, Father, this world, these circumstances, this stuff that I'm facing, it's too much for me. And the best place for me to be right now is in your arms. That's where I need to begin. And that's where we begin as we pray. Our Father in heaven today, we come to you. We thank you for these words. We thank you for this lesson and how to pray. Before we get any further into this series, before we get any further into these words that Jesus taught us, we simply come here and we are reminded that you are our Heavenly Father. And God, we know that you love us. We know that you care for us. We know that you seek to hold us through all the circumstances that we face. So God, as we begin this new year, we come to you. And we say, Father, we can't trust on our own. We don't trust... Uh, we, we trust in you. We put our faith in you. God, that we don't know what the future holds. And so for some of us, we have some trepidation and some worry. We, we don't know what is around the next bend. Father, help us to put our trust and our faith in you today. Our Father in heaven. Amen.